Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Michael Mercini. Thank you very much. It's, it's very nice to be here with you today. I want to say that before I start, that, uh, that I have, was allowed by the University of California at San Francisco, which is my home, uh, to, as a professor to take leaves of absence and found two companies. I was actually, I'm actually, for a long time, I was the only professor allowed to do that and be able to return to my faculty position because I convinced them that it was not for self-aggrandizement. But you should still understand that uh, I do profit by what those companies do in a variety of ways. And, and toward the end of my talk, I'm going to talk about what they do. And so understand at that point, you, I'm, in a sense, commercially contaminated. <laughs> I also want to say at the outset that this research has been conducted with the collaboration of several thousand people. And you should understand that all of this science is team science. And many, many cl clinicians in the world have helped us demonstrate the valid validity or the values of what we do. Uh, medical doctors, therapists of all types, then many technologists, scientists, psychologists, many other individuals have participated in these studies in one way or another. And in a sense, I get way too much credit for it because I'm the oldest. You know, I commonly speak for this group. But you should understand that this is, a lot of people are involved with this. And everybody that's been involved has played an important role in it. And then finally, I want to say that the science I'm going to talk about is very, very complicated. So you could say maybe about a third or maybe 40% of all brain science now focuses on the processes by which the brain changes itself in all kinds of ways as you acquire ability in life across the span of a life. So you should understand at the outset that this is a deep and complicated business. And I can only talk about it in a very, very superficial way. So my passage across it is going to be superficial. That's why I apologize for that. For those of you who are not very familiar with this science, you can think of this as a starting point in your understanding of something that should be very important to you. And as I talk about it, I want you to know that if you want inform additional information about it, I have written a book specifically with the idea of trying to help you go a little farther, a little deeper into, into understanding as it might apply to you in your life. So I'm going to begin by talking about, well, this is not a good start. I guess I got to turn on my device here. I'm going to begin by talking about brain plasticity. And I'm going to specifically focus on an aspect of brain plasticity processes. And that is to say that the capacity of your brain to change, which is with, with us for life, is constructed by Mother Nature or the creator of the universe to be reversible. It's very easy to drive the brain in a positive direction, just as easy to drive it in a negative direction. I want to tell you a little bit about that reversibility and its sort of broad implications for all of us. And, uh, in, 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 uh, it will be a major aspect of what I try to explain to you today. I'm then going to go on to talk a little bit about how we extend the science, understanding how the brain change to try to control the genie, to bring, braining, to bring the brain, you could say, under control to drive brains in useful or corrective or positive directions to strengthen human performance ability to recover people from lost or missing function. I'm going to specifically focus on brain plasticity-based strategies 
that have been designed to delay neurological disease onsets. So a major thrust of what we're now interested in is to drive changes in the brain in ways that increase resilience in someone that's at risk for a bad fate, not so far maybe into their future, or maybe in the long run, in some distant point in their future. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about how we're trying to apply this science to manage brain health. A brain is just about the last organ that you possess in your body in which there's any real, has been any real attempt to manage your health. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we can now see a path to trying to get to that and, and, and deliver that possibility into medicine. So first of all, we now know that the brain is plastic. And it's plastic for, for life. You come into the world unformed, nothing in your brain, within your skull, except so much unorganized noise. And from that, rapidly, through quadrillions of transactions, of moments of change, you actually create a model of that world. And slowly, inexorably, you drive changes that allow you to control your actions within that world. You actually create, through a massive schedule of self-reference, where you as the actor on the stage, you as the receiver of information, you as the person receiving information sensorily from your body, you actually create within your skull, within your lifetime, the centered self that you are, the person that you are, and all of your fine abilities, everything that you're good at, is a product of progressive brain change in your skull, in this incredibly plastic machine, acquired through the by change through the course of your life. What a gift. Now we know that you can acquire ability at any point in life. We see this lady in the lower right. We know that she could have actually acquired a skill like this later in life. She could certainly improve at it if she worked intensely at an ability like this. But we know that any skill acquisition or development in any uh, improvement of any skill actually requires brain change. This is a capacity that's with us for life. You can think of it as, uh, as all of us being, in a sense, works in progress. Your brain made you, and whatever your age. You're still in the process of making yourself, in a sense, of creating yourself. You're still changing. You're still on the path of self-creation. You will until you die. Now, we studied this process in the acquisition of skill in complicated ways in animal models. And we've also studied it in humans. And we can look at humans that have specific skills or abilities. So this is a skill or ability that almost everyone in this room has acquired, the ability to read. And we know that when you look down into the brain of someone that can read, the brain has been changed by the progression in reading, a relatively complicated skill, relatively recently invented in the history of our species. And when you look in the brain of such an individual, they have the brain of a reader. You can find seven or eight or nine centers of activity that are clearly associated with the different dimensions of reading. They're not there before you read. The sort of a connect connections in the system that support reading are not established in a strong way before you read. So now we're looking down at the brain of a series of readers just to the lateral surface of the brain. I've highlighted two areas on the lateral surface, and you can see these areas are strongly engaged in, in readers, not engaged at all, at least visibly, in non-readers. 
So these are matched children of the same race. Some children can read, some children can't read. Children that can read have a reading brain. We know that this area, the activity in this area is very strongly related to the acquisition of making that fundamental translation between word sounds that are translated as letters. The reading is an ongoing high-speed translation, an ongoing translation between the sound parts of words that bear meaning and those little squiggly symbols, those letters that represent them. So we know that that primary translation of sound, you could say, to script is occurring here. We know that this area, the activity in this area, is very highly correlated with the, with the interpretation of the meaning of written words. Now it turns out that you could take the great majority of children that can't read and you can train them. And the training takes about, on the average, about 20 hours. And as a consequence of training them, you can create within the child a reading brain. So here's an example of a summary of, of, uh, of information from 20 children who were trained. 17 of these children were successfully converted from non-readers to readers as a consequence of that 20 hours of the training, progressive training on a computer. We can say here we used brain plasticity to drive changes in the brain that would recover this capacity to read. I might say none of these children are yet reading because all we've done in this, in this training to this point is we train children to overcome a fundamental impairment that is disabling, that is frustrating their initiation of reading. Because the reason that most children can't read is because they are not representing the sound parts of words in an accurately detailed way. So for them, the translation from sound to letters makes no sense. They actually have to train the child as a listener. And we train the child to be a more accurate listener, the great majority of children will be enabled to learn to read. They still have to practice reading once this enabling occurs. And that can take several additional months. It turns out that 17 of these 20 children, these are just typical non-reading children, we've trained several million of them in this way in the United States, a million or so other children who couldn't read in other places in the world. And, uh, and when we do that, we see that they acquire these activities, of course, that, that support the neurology of reading. Now you might say there's a little stronger pulse here. We know this is always arises when the child is initially, would occur in these children as well, when the child is initially learning to make this translation, then we know two or three months all of this activity will be above in the circle just as in here. All of, I've used this example to point out that when you're thinking about driving a correction in the brain to the benefit of someone that is impaired or that is struggling, you need to understand elemental aspects of the neurology a way to know how to drive the correction or the change in the brain to generate the outcome that you're seeking. Now you've actually acquired dozens and dozens of abilities like this by changing your brain, by creating a brain that for you has all of that capacity to implement all of these peculiar skills, all of this 
incredible tool use that you've mastered in your own life and that you continue to drive changes in your brain. You're continuing to master new skills and abilities across the span of your life. Now I want to focus on, on an aspect of this incredible capacity to change the brain by, uh, by, by, by uh, discussing a specific aspect of these change processes, and that is their reversible nature. We've studied this in animal models by studying rats in the prime of life, and then contrasting those rats, we looked at about 20 different aspects of their neurology, and contrasted their brain aspects of their brain function, I'll talk about in a minute, and their physical brain, with the brains of animals that are near the end of life. So this is a rat that's several months away from its expected demise. You can tell that he's old because he has white whiskers. I like to say if you see a rat with white whiskers in your garage, be nice to him. <laughs> he's old. And you see this young, vigorous person, much more with it. We know these individuals are, are swifter in lots of ways, physically and functionally more capable. Uh, dare we call it cognitively more capable uh, than the old rat that's losing it. So we, we, we basically look in, in 20 different ways, and we're getting into nerdy stuff now, at these rats contrasting their, their, the, the differences that we see in young versus old brains. And the first thing you could ask, well, of these 20 things that we looked at, how many of them were different in an animal near the end of life as compared with an animal in the prime of life? And the answer is they're all different. Everything is substantially different in an old animal versus a animal in, young in full of it. And the second question we ask, well, how many of these things advantage the older brain? And the answer is, alas, none of them. In every respect, younger is swifter, more reliable, more functionally intact, more vigorous, healthier, faster. In every way, you could say the younger brain has advantages in all of these physical characteristics. And then we asked an extremely important question, really what the experiments are all about. We sent older individuals, we also done the equivalent experiments in many dimensions in humans, again contrasting young with old. We sent them to the brain gym, specifically training them with using we would say brain health relevant strategies drive changes in their brain. We're specifically trying to drive changes, positive changes in the function, functional characteristics of their brain. What we're interested in when we initiated these experiments, I might say these experiments were led by a brilliant young uh, neurologist who's now on the faculty at McGill University in the Neurological Institute, and, and also by Jody Mishra, who's now on the faculty at UCSF, uh, but is uh, probably moving in the next month or two to UC San Diego. So to make a long story short, we engaged these individuals in, in, in relatively simple forms of training. One of our goals was to determine how complicated the, form, the training would have to be to drive positive change. And we'll start by an answering the simple question that we're asking is the grand question. How many of these 20 characteristics that define the degraded operations, you could say, of the old brain, in contrast to the young brain, were reversible, were correctable by training? And the simple answer was all of them.
Every dimension, every aspect of the brain in the old animal was driven a long distance, in most respects in an animal, this is a rat, not a human, all the way back to match the performance characteristics that we'd see in a rat in the private life. I want to just show you a few, uh, uh, brief, brief talk about this a little bit. And this is complicated science, so I'm sorry about that. So first we're going to look at local and long-range myelination. This is, the, this is the insulation and the wiring of the brain. And we see in the, in the systems that we've engaged in training, they're completely restored to a youthful status. We look at response powers, that is to say the magnitudes of responses that we evoke by test stimuli, and we see that they're restored to useful levels. They're very substantially lower before we train, recovered to youthful levels after we train. I might say the training it took, it takes a to total of about six weeks. The training is relatively intensive. The rat is working very hard, making about a thousand decisions every day about things that it's hearing in complex, several com complex different forms. So the rat's working hard at it, not trivial for the rat. But he's driving all of these things back to a youthful level. When you look at response coordination, which is the critical dimension of change in an old brain, because response coordination re confers reliability in the operation of the brain, we see it's more than completely rejuvenated. We actually have to train the young rat to bring it back to the characteristics that we see in the old trained rat. We look at specific neuronal populations, and these are key inhibitory cell populations, never mind exactly what that means. But these neuron numbers that are expressing, that are active, as it, contributing to strong innovation of the brain, this is critical for controlling, again, synchrony and, and, and correlate, uh, correlated activities in brains, and they're strongly restored by training. We look at the, the dendrites of, of, uh, of cells, these are the receiving processes of nerve, nerve cells, and we see they're re-elaborated as we see in a young animal, and on and on. Everything we look at is restored to the status of a much more, to a much younger animal, to a youthful state. So here's a few examples, and I know these are a little bit hard to see. You can see that this is myelination, and we're looking at the formation of new myelin. We see a lot of it occurring in the young animal. We see virtually none being generated in the old animal, and we see that it's being restored by training. And actually, if we control the dosing, we can generate myelin on the same rate that we're generating in a young animal, in an old animal, by after the animal's been trained. I might say that these effects are long surviving. I recently completed a study in collaboration with a scientist in Shanghai, Xiaoming Zhou is his name, and we actually trained rats at several different stages in life and looked at the longevity of effects. We see very strong sustained effects for, for more than two years out from the time we trained an animal. I might say another thing that we've seen that's extremely interesting in these rats is at the end of training, they weren't about to die. They were very lively and very vigorous. And actually, we just kept several rats around asking ourselves, well, how long will these rats live with no further training? It turned out that we extended their life by about 40%. Now, we're now extending this experiment it's a difficult experiment to do because you have to grow rats for a long time and you have to, in a sense, wait for them to become frail and infirm. And so far, although we've begun this experiment, 
several years ago, none of these rats are to the point where they're frail and infirm. So we're not really sure how long we can keep them alive. And we had to repeat the experiment because we know that there are advantages in longevity from depriving rats of food. And rats are mildly deprived of food when you train them so that they work for food. They basically have to work for a living to be trained. So we had to start the experiment over from scratch. Well, no one about a year or two years, we think, the extent to which we can extend the life of the rat by training. Here's another example. This is just response correlation. This is local synchrony and the responses of neurons. It's, you could say a measure of their cooperativity. Their cooperativity is critical for generating reliable responses and for engaging brain systems in a strong way. The bottom function, lower is worse, is the old rat. The middle function is the young rat. The blue function is the old trained rat. If you train the rat, he's actually superior to the young rat. You have to train the young rat to leapfrog back again over the old rat. Here's another simple example. Here we're looking at post-excitatory inhibition in the cortex. And we see that it's relatively strong in the young animal. We see it's weakened in an old animal. It's completely recovered in the age-trained animal. Again, we train the young animal to leapfrog the activities that we see in the, young, in the old trained animal. Here's a third example. This is a specific inhibitory neuron population. These are probabulmin inhibitory neurons are critical for controlling synchronization in brain systems. We see there's lots of them in this young animal, relatively sparsely labeled in this old animal, and we see recovery. And again, if the dosing is right, we can drive complete recovery in an animal near the end of life. Here's a, another mention. It's, we've re now recorded a whole series of changes that are occurring in the immune system and also in the, in the brain's control of its own immune response. And this, these are occurring because of changes in glial cell characteristics in the brain and in the relationship of the vasculature of the brain. So these are not so much of when you think about plasticity. Most people think about connectivity, right? We're, we're beyond talking about connectivity. We're talking about physical changes that clearly relate to brain health. Here, what we're restoring is a leaky barrier between the blood compartment and the brain tissue compartment. We know that barrier is leaky in old brains. We know that agents from blood, infectious agents, leak into brains. It's argued to be one of the fundamental contributors to the genesis of plaques and Alzheimer's disease, for example. We can see that with training, the barrier is restored. We have a young brain that has an intact barrier. That the bright color you see is an indication of an agent leaking from the blood compartment into the brain compartment. And then we train the old brain, and it turns out it's completely restored. So all 20 things that we measure are restored like this as a consequence of training. Now, it, it turns out that the training that applies to accomplish this is relatively simple. First of all, it's important to know that these rejuvenating physical and functional neurobiological changes are coordinated. We train the brain in relatively simple ways, and all of these things change together. You could say, by training in these simple ways, we're driving the brain from a progression in which it's essentially destroying itself, and reverse that and drive it in a blastic or growth direction again, with all of these things changing in a positive direction again in a recovering or strengthening or rejuvenating direction. This reversal is actually achieved by applying relatively simple forms. It takes two different forms of intensive behavioral training that engage both bottom-up 
and top-down brain system processes. This is a little bit nerdy, I know. But the point is, is that the forms of training that are required to drive these changes are relatively simple. And they're not like the cognitive training that you commonly think about. It's not like practicing remembering or practicing problem solving. So if you go to the internet and you look up cognitive training, or you know about cognitive training, maybe some of you have practiced these exercises that you know about. It's, this is not what I'm talking about. These, the training here is more elemental. There's substantial generalization beyond directly trained sensory perceptual systems. So we focus in this training in a system, and we actually see strong brain-wide effects in things like the blood-brain barrier recovery, or the recovery of the immune response across the brain the recovery of fast responding across the brain. We see substantial generalization. We actually train in a system, and then we look at other systems, and we see that generalization expressed in them. They're also faster. They also have recoveries of these characteristics. And though all studies are less complete, we've done the same classes of experiment in a completely different population of animals. What we've done is we've trained, we've raised animals, again, these are rats, have a very bad childhood, let's say. And they, we have degraded their neurology substantially. Just as in humans, the neurology is substantially degraded by the fact of a very bad childhood. And then we've looked at those rats as young adults. And we've compared them with rats that have had a normal, you could say, healthy childhood. And again, all 20, all 20 factors are different. And all 20 characteristics that we record, we see a strong, sharp distinction between the brain of an animal model that has had a terrible childhood and the brain of an animal model that has had a hypothetically good one. And all are reversible. All can be driven in these young animals now in a corrective direction. So how do you turn an old or maybe even a developmentally impaired brain into a physically and functionally more capable one, we train it. You engage it in intensive training. Of course, it matters how you do that. Rejuvenation will only be achieved with particular forms of training. So then that raises another question. You know, why the hell did the brain go south to start with? So can we accelerate aging in an animal? How could we turn a brain in the prime of life into an old one? Why did it change at all? What's it all about? Turns out this is a very, very easy experiment to do. And all you have to do to drive accelerated aging is to just add noise. And by noise, I don't mean exactly acoustic noise. I mean you need to, you need to manipulate the brain in ways in which you drive chatter. You drive meaningless activity of the brain in brain systems. And when you do that for four or five or six weeks in an animal in the prime of life, the brain of the animal looks like it's about to go. It looks like an animal near the, the brain of an animal near the end of life. Now what the noise is doing is it's basically degrading the ability of the animal to control its activities in, in, with precision in time. But basically, the brain has, is resolving 
information. It's representing information by organizing activities in time. And basically, when the processes are noisy, it necessarily has to make adjustments. You could think of it a little bit like uh, I'm, out in the, I'm out in the evening, I'm looking across the meadow. The, 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 the illumination is not very clear. I see something at the edge of the wood. I say, what is that I see? I have to look longer to be sure that it's a deer. I have to look longer because the signal to noise conditions are poor. Under, under poor operating conditions, I have to take longer. I have to adjust the time constant to make sure I get the answer right. Now, your survival is dependent upon you relatively reliably getting the answer right. And the brain basically has a strategy for changing the way it samples information from the world to make certain that you're always under control. But even though you're under control and you're sure you're still, in a sense, a master of your life and are relatively reliably getting the answer right, you may doing, be doing that with a substantially compromised brain. A brain that, in fact, is sluggish in its operations. It has to take longer. It has to wait longer. It makes more errors. It makes more mistakes. So basically, you could think of this reversibility as reflecting or manifesting processes by which the brain is doing the best it can to make all of the adjustments it can to get the answer right. The bottom line is we appear to be able to throw the switch to induce plastic changes. We did that in these old animals. We're regrowing all of these processes. Or we can throw the switch and drive everything backward by manipulating the brain in, which, in ways in which we can drive all of these changes in a negative direction. Now, I, I might say that the way we did these experiments in actual fact, the primary way, one way was to manipulate inhibitory processes of the brain increase the levels of meaningless activity in brains. But the primary way was to bombard the brain with acoustic noise. And we, by doing that, basically, we allowed no organized activity to come in through the auditory, into the auditory brain. It was noise just below the level that would damage the ears and, 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 and so affect the hearing in the animal. And yet it introduces a lot of meaningless background chatter in the brain. So why does the brain go south in aging in the average human? We know in the average individual, looking broadly across, first of all, there's tremendous variation in the way our brains age, individual to individual. And one of the greatest change, uh, things that occurs across lifetime is an increase of the variation, or the variation in ability as we get older. So some people in their 70s or 80s are very much with it neurologically. Other people in their 70s or 80s are really, really struggling with this tremendous variation. But why, do, why does it decline as a rule beyond roughly our 30th to 40th birthday? I might say females decline a little slower. That is to say they have a little longer period in which they, they maintain high functionality. And then they lose the hormonal advantages that distinguish them from the male side of the human race. And then they decline in an accelerated way so that by roughly the 65th birthday, they've caught up in decline on the average. Well, one of the ways to think about it is, is that we're not, we live a life in which we're acquiring our ability and refining our ability in a very intensive and more or less continuous way when we're young. 
and we master abilities that become the sort of dominant themes of our life, and we're playing them, we're operating with them, we're, we're using them more or less automatically. We're living our life largely on automatic pilot. We're no longer focusing on the accurate receiving or manipulation of information. But here's an example of a, of a fellow, we'll call him Bill, that's, that's learned to master this complex tool. And we know that it takes, it's taken many, many thousands of hours for him to master the use of this instrument, playing of this instrument. We know he has incredible ability to control his finger, the fingering on his uh, fingering hand that's out, out of view behind the head. And also beautiful ability to control this, the, the, the bow in all kinds of complicated ways. He's reading the special language of the, the translated in the, in, the, in, in the musical score, but also the language of the conductor. He's a master listener. In order to sustain these abilities, he has to practice every day, or almost every day of his life, to sustain high ability. Now, what if Bill stopped practicing? What if Bill didn't practice for a month? Well, everyone around him would be aware of the fact that he's not practicing. Say, hey, Bill, what's up? You're not, they begin to notice detectable differences for the experts around him. Well, what if Bill didn't practice for a year? Well, Bill would probably, if not having lost his job, he'd definitely be in danger of losing his job. Well, what if Bill didn't practice for 10 years? Well, he'd be a pretty good violin player to we amateur listeners. He could make us cry. He could he'd still have a level of mastery. He'd still have a wonderful memory for things he'd played in the past, but no longer playing it at the same refined level. But what if Bill decided, after not practicing for 10 years, to renew his skills and abilities and to take up, with intense practice, his instrument again and remaster, recover, and restore these abilities? Could Bill do it? Well, there are many instances, of course, in music history in which that's a, that has happened exactly. We know there'd be a very high probability that Bill could recover his, his abilities again on an expert level. So, most of you haven't been practicing enough. You know, you're living on automatic, you're running on automatic pilot. Most of you are not engaging yourself in the world in ways that your brain is asking you to, in part because the way we've changed our cultural interaction with environments. We're no longer so challenged by environments. In fact, commonly we seek escape from the challenge that environments might provide us that would contribute to our continuous sharpening of our elemental neurological abilities. So here's an example of a person doing what the average human on Earth, at least in an advanced, so-called advanced country like the US of A, it does about 11 hours a day, sitting down on your keister. In his case, he's sitting on the desk, and about the only use he has for his body, and uh, these arms, in fact, they're just like little robot members in front of him. He's very limited. He has very little limited, you could say, engagement of the action of his body in relation to the operations of his brain. So he's missing out on a lot of potential uh, brain e e exercise that would be very valuable to him. Here's another obvious example. Well, the average citizen spends many hours a day looking at a screen. And this is not exactly a situation where, again, we're translating this information that we're receiving into any action. We're really acting, interacting with the screen 
in a, in a very removed way, commonly. Exercising the hell out of our emotional responses. But that's about it. Of course, why do, why do we need to actually reason to anything anymore? We can look up the answer. We used to have to engage our brain to try to discover the answer within all kinds of things that we now find delivered to us on our computers or devices. And of course, we've paved the world to make certain that every footfall is certain. I mean, even out in the country, for God's sake, you have to walk on the sidewalk, right? And that's depriving you, actually, of thousands of moments a day in which the footfall was uncertain, a little bit of visual slip would occur. The brain has to make a little adjustment to the, to the, to the little, uh, the little uh, perturbation and balance and so forth, incredibly valuable for you in sustaining your sharpened visual operations. Of course, we don't really have to know where we are <laughs> or how to get there. We don't look for landmarks the way we should. It's one of the most important skills that we humans have, is to be masters of the landscape that we live in, that we operate in. But we substantially remove ourselves from that and don't challenge ourselves with it as a rule. Of course, many things can befall us. Many things can happen to us that can alter the quality, of our, the quality of our neurology and could directly induce noisiness into the processes in our brain. So there's about 100 things that we know about that increase the noisiness of our brain and increase or accelerate the risk in which we're driven into the hole in an adult life in a modern world. And uh, we're also, we also operate with such incredible distraction that even when something fabulous happens right in front of us, <laughs> we can be completely unaware of it. So every morning in my, sit in my, in my, in, in, in my neighborhood in San Francisco, near the medical school complex, I take a walk about an hour with my dog. And one of the things I'm really struck by in my daily walk and especially in considering the accumulation of my experiences in walking in my neighborhood over a period of about 40 years, is how much things have changed in interaction with other human beings throughout in the world in my neighborhood. Most people I see are within themselves, distracted. Some people are actually carrying their little devices along so that they have supported their distractions. But most people are within themselves, often their little private world, so removed from the physical reality they're in, they're clearly depriving their brain of all of the sort of necessary engagements that it might need to sustain its ongoing health. You could say modern culture is all about living life without the rather troublesome requirement of having much of a brain. <laughs> so one of the reasons we're clearly, we clearly decline in an older age is because we remove ourselves from challenges that are represented by the physical environment that we live in. And we're doing this, you could say, in a sort of an increasingly powerful way as we evolve, not necessarily in every way in a positive direction. Now, I also pointed out by showing you the individual that had fallen off his bike and whacked his head, that there are hundreds of other, uh, hundred or so, uh, many, many other vicissitudes that occur in the course of a life that can add to the noisiness of your brain. And all of these, all of these things we know, we can argue, plausibly contribute to increased noisiness. And you could say almost everybody has something befall them, maybe multiple things befall them in life, uh, especially, especially often 
in older age. So by the time you reach your 60th birthday, for example, about half of the human race has had a diagnosed mental illness, some form. Most people don't realize this. They've been seriously treated for something inside, and that something inside has clearly contributed to the rate at which the brain is changing in a negative direction. But many, many other things can occur that in, in the brain can be infected or wounded in a whole series of ways. And many things can befall it that will drive it south in a, at a greater than otherwise rate, normal rate. Now, one of the consequences of all of that is that as you age, the brain is making all of these co complex adjustments. And that's reflected by the fact a signature index of that measure is the slowing down of the brain from the prime of life in your 20s and 30s, decade by decade, until essentially you fall off the cliff near the end of life. And this change is actually substantial. Over a 30-year period, you actually change a standard deviation. That's another way of saying that you move from the middle of the distribution to roughly the 16th percentile in 30 years. From 30th to 60th birthday, that's a big movement. By the time you reach your 90th birthday, you're down to a fraction of your ability and operating very, very sluggishly in all operations that we can measure in your brain. You might see one of these functions as moving upward, kind of encouraging. This is knowledge. This is the placeholder for knowledge. In this case, it's vocabulary. Knowledge is cumulative. One of the reasons that Young people let us old people hang around is because we've been recording information over a long period of life. And we've actually manipulated our brain in all kinds of ways and crystallized. We come to conclusions about it. We call that wisdom. Older individuals in societies are very valuable to societies. You couldn't imagine a wartime Britain being led by a 25-year-old Winston Churchill. So knowledge is valuable, and we do accumulate it. But wouldn't it be better? If we were knowledgeable and swift as hell, wouldn't that be better? <laughs> wouldn't it be better if we were still with it in every operational way? Wouldn't it be better if we had our health, our brain in this organic and physical ways within a healthier state? Of course it would be. Now one of the illusions that many people have is that they're protected from hazards of old age because they have good genes. And good genes do matter. But there's so many other factors that can come into a life that are compromising to the brain. You have always have to keep that in mind. Many, many other factors that can come into play that can overcome, you could say, the advantages you have by having strong genetics in your family, in your life. Now, it turns out that we can substantially improve the speed of your brain in operations by training you. Now here's an example of individuals that have been trained on a computer exercise, and again, this is a kind of commercial, okay, so take, be, 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 be wary. This is on BrainHQ, which is a, a commercial website in a company that we, I've co-founded called Posit Science Corporation. And here we're looking at individuals of all ages, actually running from about 20 to about 90. And here, are, this is their performance in speed before they're trained, and you can see that just as in rats, older is slower, up is worse, lower is faster, okay? 
But you can see that very systematically beyond the second, third, or fourth decade of life, they're, they're, people are systematically slowing down on the average. This is from about 4,000 people. When we actually have this data, I could show you a figure like this for a couple hundred thousand people. And now we train them all. And in this case, they're all trained equivalently. And you can see that everybody improves. The young people improve substantially, so do the old people. And now let's look at the performance of an old person that's been trained and compare their performance with a young person that's not been trained. And what we see is that they approximately match. So here we have some, a group of people that are in their 70s. The, on the, this marks the, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, people that are centered around 70 years of age. And you can see once they're trained, their performance at speed equates with the performance of an untrained 20-year-old. Now, it turns out that we see this recovery of elemental ability in skill after skill and ability after ability by training. Remember, these are very, these are very elemental measures of ability. This does not translate directly to measures of something like memory. We recently did an, a, a controlled trial in, uh, in a population at the University of Iowa. Studies were conducted at the University of Iowa. And we saw this effect translated to an improvement of memory that equated with about 20 years. So in other words, we have an individual in, in operational speed measured in a variety of ways and in memory in a variety of ways in higher comp in more complex functions in their brain. And the initial age at the beginning of the trial averaged about 69 years of age. And after the training, their performance ability matched the performance ability that we'd expect uh, as if they were about 22 years younger. Well, that's basically the level of changes that we see when we look at the impacts on more complicated skills or abilities. Now, we've actually done studies like this in many, with many tasks. So here's a speed of divided attention task. It's multitasking, remembering faces, visual search, discrimination of word sounds, working memory, identification of syllables in a challenging environment, visual tracking. And you can see that in every case, I might say in the upper four panels, up is poor, every case older is worse. In the bottom four panels, down is poor, in every case older is worse. And now what the purple line represents in every case is the movement of the trained older person back to the performance level of the, of, in the direction of the 20-year-old. And you can see here the older trained individual is substantially superior to the young. Untrained individual matches it better, substantially better little better, better, and so, and so on and so forth. So we see this over and over again in humans as we did in rats. I might say that when you consider these changes and consider their origins in the brain, we know that many things are changing physically in the brain, have to be changing chemically, physically, functionally to account for these behavioral performance improvements, just as in the rat. So, one of the reasons that I showed you the example or, or focused on the representation of speed is because a trial has been conducted beginning about 14, 15 years ago in about 3,800 individuals who were trained specifically in the task that I illustrated earlier, a task in which people were, were, were uh, trained to make decisions about what they saw at speed. So what the task involves 
is you see something that, that's in front of your nose, what's called the center of gaze, that you have to make a decision about. And initially it's presented relatively slowly, relatively deliberately, and you have to identify what it is. So there are several alternatives that it could be. You have to figure out which one it is that you see. And what's going to happen as the task becomes more difficult, it's going to be presented to you for a briefer time. But that's not all you have to do. Because immediately following that, that, that presentation of that stimulus, a second thing occurs in the divided attention task. And it occurs somewhere in the visual perimeter. And you have to detect where that anomalous thing is occurring in the visual perimeter. So you have to first identify what it is you see in the center. And then you have to determine when something is, is arising in your vision that you might should attend to, you could say, in the visual periphery. That also comes to be presented at briefer and briefer times. It often becomes to be presented at faster time following the presentation of the stimulus in the center. I know this sounds a little bit complicated. It also becomes presented as time passes in the exercise, you get better and better at it, farther and farther out in the visual periphery, away from the center of gaze. So initially, it's relatively easy. You're making a decision, things occurring relatively slowly and, uh, in front of you, and determining whether you see, let's say, a car or a truck. Then you might see the appearance of a road sign out here. Initially, it's relatively close to where you're looking, right, right in front of you. But pretty soon, things are moving at a lightning speed. And people can be trained progressively to get faster and faster at making these distinctions. And again, you can demonstrate that you can drive the performance ability of a person at a task like this over a period of about 10 hours. Be like the performance ability initially, typifying a 75-year-old, these individuals at the initiation of this trial were 74 years of age on the average. You can drive their performance ability to be like the performance ability of the typical untrained 25 or 30-year-old. Now, when you do that, basically, that, that was done in a series of about 750 people, in, individuals in this trial. And after training, basically, you see this really nice improvement of their performance. And then we waited a year and determined whether their performance had been altered. It turned out it was well-sustained a year later. And even though it was well-sustained a year later, half these people were selected out and were trained initially for 10 hours for another two to four hours in this epoch at year one, trained some more, they were given a booster shot. And one of the reasons that the scientists did this is they wanted to know how much additional training they would have to apply for people to fully retain the improvements of performance that they got from the initial dose of 10 hours of training. And their estimation was it would take one additional hour per year. Not a big effort. They wait for two years. First of all, they look at the second year, and they see it's pretty well sustained. It's a little slippage. Remember, these people are moving now from their 74th birthday out in time. By, by, the, by the end of this trial, they're going to be 84 on the average. We look at three years, and they're still hanging in there quite effectively, and now we train again. The same individual subpopulation that received the booster shots receives another booster shot of another two to four hours. At five years, we see the effect is relatively well sustained. So now moving between, on the average, their, their 79th birthday and their 84th birthday, you can see there's a significant slippage. But they're still better in performance than they were before they started. 
But first of all, you can drive a change in this performance ability that's relatively long enduring. And the change can drive you back to the performance that equates the performance of a much younger individual. I might say, when, as we apply this in human populations, what we're trying to do is to drive everyone controlling the dosing of training back to the performance level of a person at least no older, you could say, than 50 to 60 years of age. For one reason, because we know very few people of 50, 60 years of age and the natural course of things develop dementia. So that's our, 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 our approximate target. Now, in this trial, they saw that these individuals, as a consequence of training, had quicker reaction times and safer on-road driving. In fact, as a consequence of this training, for 10 hours, and this applies in generally across the population, thousands and thousands of automobile drivers have been trained using this strategy, uh, people uh, have caused between a third and, and half as many driving accidents. So much safer driving occurring because the, the, the vision, their vision and seeing things in the distance and responding at speed is dramatically facilitated by this training. Sustained safer and more confident driving. Basically, people keep their driver's licenses. They sustain their mobility, not just in driving, but it has significant impacts on their physical mobility. They see a sustained reduction of at-fault crashes, as I said. They see retained driving mobility up to 10 years. Well, basically, by doing this, relatively few people that were trained have lost their driving license, a large proportion of individuals that hadn't had lost it. I might say this. They see long to sustain improvements of everyday functional abilities. So they just look at, after training, your ability to perform an everyday task. People that were trained performed it about twice as fast. So I have to do a visually guided task that was dependent upon you operating at speed and making judgments or finding something that you were looking for or whatever. Uh, they, they cut the time in performance in half. They saw prevention of substantial a decrease in the number of individuals that move forward to a major depressive disorder. And if depression did occur, as it did in a, in a, in a small subpopulation of individuals that were trained, it occurred in a milder form. They saw a greater internal locus of control, so they evaluate how well the people think they're controlling their life. And again, remember, this is a random assigned control trial. This is pretty reliable index that these people have are, are, are feel strong sense of that they're more in control of their lives and they're able to sustain their independence. They had better self-rated health and improved quality of life over five years. They had lower medical cost, and if you just look at their cumulative costs, they, they represent a cost of about $250, $300 per year in, 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 in reduction of, of, uh, of expenses med medically. They have more modest decline in everyday functional abilities across 10 years. And most of all, for the people that received the, the, the booster shots, half as many as in the control populations advanced to dementia. That's a big effect. The people that didn't receive the booster shots, reduction was about 30%. A single dose of 10 hours of working intensely 10 years before has a statistically significant impact on the probability that 10 years later you would have advanced to dementia. 
And if you had two little booster shots, two to four hours, in the end of the first year and in the, first, in the third year, that protected you half the people, half as many people in the trained population advanced to dementia as in the control population. I have a strong feeling that I'm going, going very slowly in this talk. That my clock doesn't work because I turned off my phone. I have absolutely no idea what the hell time it is. Hell. Am I about, have I about used up my time? Oh, wow, I have five minutes to go. <laughs> so what changes then when the brain struggles in its own a old age? Well, the simple answer is everything. So what can be reversed by training? Well, we, we think everything can be. How difficult is it to reverse the course of change? It's, it's really not very, very difficult, <laughs> at least in a, certainly in an animal, and we think in humans. Can such training in humans delay or block the progression to dementia, to Alzheimer's disease? Now, this answer is tentative. The study that's been conducted is very, looks bulletproof to us. But we obviously need to extend it in larger, still better control trials. But the initial answer appears to be yes. I might say in, with respect to that, remember that the dosing, there was no real consideration of the dosing of the training in this trial. We could almost certainly do better in sustaining brain health. And, and also we strongly believe that training just a little bit more elaborately would have a major positive impact on providing safety for more people in the, than, than uh, the half, half of the individuals in the trained population that were protected. Finally, we see this science as providing a straightforward basis for managing brain health. Because we can control the dosing in an individual, we can monitor brain speed we can monitor the characteristics of the brain that reflect these aspects of its organic health. We can do that relatively simply by having people perform simple exercises on the computer assessments that are computer-based every so often. Tell us whether they're still safe. Tell us whether they're in a hypothetically safe position. And if they need to go back into training or they need to make lifestyle changes that would contribute to improvements of their health, they can be encouraged to and guided in doing that. So neurological medicine in the meanwhile, from the time of its origins about 150 years ago, has been focused on disaster relief. Now, neuro neurological medicine has a completely different vision of how you should think about the, the diseases of aging. But basically, you're not sick until you get the diagnosis. You're not really worthy of treatment or you do not really get treatment until you're ready to fall off the cliff, or have fallen off the cliff. It's official. You've fallen off the cliff. You have Alzheimer's disease. What can I do about it? Nothing. Or you can take a few palliative things. You can take things that, to, that might help you with your anxiety. You can improve your memory a little. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, the source of all of that came from UC Irvine, by the way. Improve your memory a little, for a little while. And then you can wait to die. You can make arrangements. You're probably going to need a lot of care over a long time because the average time with the condition is, is a long time. Basically, they, the science, not just the medicine, but the science has focused over the last hundred years on the train wreck. 
So medical doctors and scientists have tried their best to understand how to treat the train wreck. I blame this man for all of this chaos because Kreppelin basically named the, 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 the condition, this final deterioration end stage, a predicted end stage of the progressive deterioration of the brain, generated through these natural progressive plasticity processes, he named it a disease after his colleague and friend, Alois Alzheimer. <laughs> so this son of a uh, this guy <laughs> actually is responsible, in a sense, for getting us all off on the wrong track. For the practice of neurology, brain plasticity changes everything. Because we now understand that the ultimate the ultimate, this condition is the ultimate endpoint of a very long progression that begins in the middle of life. A long progression that ultimately leads to the brain, in a sense, destroying itself. And it also helps us understand that Alzheimer's is not a disease. It's the end stage of a natural progression in which the brain is slowly destroying itself as a function of, substantially a function of, how it's engaged in a life. So the neurologist still waits for, and tries to understand, and tries their damnedest to cure the train wreck. You know, it's as if you, you believe that once the brain is in this condition, there can be some magical chemical agent that can restore it. It's stuff in utter nonsense. Drugs can't work to achieve the miracle. The only way the brain could be substantially restored is by training itself, you could say, to drive itself out of the ditch. Better still to prevent the train wreck. Better still to engage brains and everybody at risk, which is everybody on the planet, to, to sustain yourself in ways that would prevent the train wreck. So we're entering a new era of brain health medicine in which neurological status can now be inexpensively assayed for pennies and continuously monitored. Life is entering an era that's a little bit like the advances within our lifetime in the management of cardiovascular health, where we've developed very simple strategies over the last century to, to relatively quickly index whether you have cardiovascular issues. So every time you go to the doctor, the, the physician, the nurse measures your blood pressure. They look at blood oxygen. They might give you an EKG if there's any suspicion of a problem. They have the very simple and inexpensive strategies to determine whether or not you should be advised to change your lifestyle. And that would be the first point of recommendation. Start thinking about how you can live your life to the advantage of your brain. If that's not enough, maybe you have to go to a computer and engage in training to drive your brain enough in a corrective direction to establish a level of safety. I, could imagine, I can imagine a hierarchy of responses as a function of the degree of the impairment that's being expressed across time. But brain health will be managed by using these simple strategies. Risk of possible upcoming problems, a whole variety of other problems are also subject to the same application of the same strategies. And as risks are defined, we now have more effective tools 
that we can apply to reduce them on the path to intelligently managing everyone's brain health. So this is in the offing. We're trying very, very hard to implement this in, uh, at BrainHQ and in other ways, in the ways that we're trying to drive this into the world to help people in need. A more holistic approach to sustaining brain health by reconsidering your lifestyle changes and brain training in different forms shall predominate. So this will be the predominant form of medicine, I predict. I think the main application of pharmaceutical treatments in this arena will be in the, in the domain in which the drugs are designed to amplify and to accelerate the rates at which changes can be driven by engaging the brain in training. You can only really rewire the brain in ways that effectively recover its functionality by engaging it progressively in training. So this will become, evolve into a form of medicine in and of itself that we'll all be aware of and all use in the relatively immediate future. So the future is, if necessary, it shall all be about restoring in and all individuals sustaining brain health using these brain self-healing strategies combined with in assessments that continuously define medical treatment outcomes. Now, a technical revolution is supporting the delivery of this medicine into the world. And we now have computerized assessments that can index brain health assets, and we can literally run it in any cell phone or pad or computer for pennies. We have apps on phones that support their continuous use. And we now have apps on phones that can determine whether or not that whatever the person is doing in their lifestyle is effective because it's monitoring what we could say their ongoing social vibrancy in a whole series of ways. So we know, and we can also, we apply little assessments on the app uh, at will, a rich variety of them, that tells us, gives us insight, direct insight into the status of the brain of the individual that we're trying to help for whatever their condition or problem. We're extending those assessments to evaluate quality of life in all kinds of ways. We're using big data models related to specific clinical indications. We try to relatively rapidly evolve these strategies to drive powerful and enduring and reliable effects in everyone in need. So one of the sites that we're applying this in a primitive way still is, is BrainHQ, but what we're doing at BrainHQ is rapidly evolving. This again is a little bit of a commercial. Now this represents a site in which the goal, in a sense, is not to drive your performance improvements as a cognitive creature so much as it is to drive improvements of brain health to ensure that your brain is operating with high functionality and all of your cognitive uses of it should be empowered as a consequence of those, of those functional improvements and changes. One of the simple things that we can do at a site like this is we can measure performance repeatedly. This happens to be my performance schedule uh, maybe six months ago. I'm proud to say I'm now at the 92nd percentile for people of my age. I'm 74. Uh, that's not too good, you might say, but this is indexing my brain health. I'm really a lot swifter than that. Just teasing. <laughs> Just teasing, of course. I could actually set this back and see how I'm relating to the average 20-year-old and what I'm doing. And that's another way of saying that if I'm doing okay in relation to the average 20-year-old, I'm probably doing okay from the point of view, which I am, from the point of view of my ongoing brain health. Now, we've been applying this science to develop new medical treatments for a variety of other conditions. We have serious research efforts and focused on autism and other severe developmental disorders. We've, we are training children that have history of attentional impairment and, and reading impairment. We've trained probably six or seven million children 
that come from the, with these histories. We're training children intensely that have history of abuse, neglect, severe deprivation. So we're trying to drive this into the world. Primary studies are in Asia and Australia. Large outcome trials are underway now. We think we can recover most of these children to, to a normal life, to an effective life. We're studying individuals that have brain injury, concussion, traumatic brain injury, stroke. People's brains have been poisoned or infected, have metabolic challenges, or have suffered the woes of chemotherapy. There are very strong impacts in all of these populations. I've highlighted the, these individuals in the bottom because in all of these cases, they're examples of instances in which we have the sort of dual objective, of both increasing resilience and providing protection by training an individual at risk for a bad progression, a progression to a disaster, as well as trying to train individuals that suffer from the disaster. We try, try to, in a sense, help them, guide them through brain training out of the hole that they're in. So that includes individuals that are addicted. So we're trying to see if we can increase resilience in young individuals that we know are at risk for addiction. We're also running a substantial trial now in individuals that are just out of prison that had an earlier period of addiction. They went into addicts, which 70% of individuals in federal prisons do in the United States, seriously addicted when they enter prison, and they come out. And the question is, can you train them in a way that reduces the probability that they'll fall back into it? We're also applying training to try to drive changes in the brain to increase the probability of recovery from addiction. And like we talked about Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, we think it's preventable. We think we can at least delay the onset substantially. Hunting disease, we know that we can't prevent it. It's a genetic disorder. But we now see that we can delay the progression of the symptoms of hunting disease and protect people from the disastrous end stages. At least delay it. Schizophrenia is probably preventable. Depression bipolar probably can probably be monitored and determined when a person is about to fall into it. It's long series of changes before you actually fall into these conditions and so on and so forth. So in a whole variety of ways, we're trying to reduce this to practice to relate to these specific clinical indications in medicine. There's a future in this. And, uh, and ultimately, this will come into medicine. And ultimately, the, the outlook of the average neurologist will change. And they'll begin to see all of these conditions as they are. As, as, the, as a passage in a brain that goes left when it should have gone right, and went south when it should have gone north. All of that movement in the direction that's leading it to what we've long described as pathology is detectable. We can see it happening. We can see it coming. In many instances, we will treat the condition by basically driving the brain in ways that increase its resilience with the goal of preventing it and not awaiting to the disaster where it's so difficult to treat. But we can see a clear path forward for transforming brain health medicine. So I'm very optimistic about how this is going to come into the medical realm and the impacts it will have in, uh, in medicine in the very near future. Finally, uh, if you want to read or know more about this, I suggest that you might think about beginning with a book. Again, this is kind of a commercial. Uh, and uh, you might enjoy this book. It provides additional information. And if you go to the website that supports the book, you'll find lots of scientific references that relate to the things I've been talking about. Thank you very much.